Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Work in Digital Humanities, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Luca Scholz. I'm a lecturer in digital humanities at the University of Manchester. And this is a new series that I'm setting up together with several colleagues uh, to create a forum to discuss new books and book length projects um, um, with a substantial uh, digital component from across the humanities. Um, and today I talk with uh, Johanna Drucker. Uh, she's the Breslauer Professor of Bibliographical Studies in the Department of Inf- Information Studies at the University of California um, at Los Angeles. And she's internationally known for her work in the history of graphic design, of uh, typography, experimental topography, so poetry, uh, fine art, and uh, the digital humanities. Uh, the book we talk about is her most recent book, Visualization and Interpretation, Humanistic Approaches to Display, which came out with MIT Press uh, just last month. And it's an interrogation of uh, visual epistemology in the digital humanities, um, a, a very diverse field with, with one of its uh, perhaps most salient commonalities being uh, its, its heavy reliance on visualization. Um, and where, where charts and maps are often considered to be straightforward expressions of data, um, this book questions this relationship and argues that the kind of interpretative work that often happens in the humanities requires uh, different forms of visual knowledge production. So welcome, Johanna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for, for being here. So before we talk about the book, could you maybe tell us uh, something about yourself and your work more broadly and how this particular book um, fits in fits in your trajectory? Sure. My work began as creative writing. I always wanted to be a writer. And when I was in undergraduate school and art school and teaching myself to draw and learning to draw, I also had the opportunity to study typography, letterpress printing, and other forms of printmaking. And the encounter with the graphical impact of letterpress, of of you know alphabetic forms cast in metal and held in your hand really brought home to me the relationship between visuality and semantic value in language and that became a central tenet of the work that I was doing as a writer and a poet and I printed letterpress books for 40 years um, but I also went on doing drawing work and became increasingly interested in the way in which drawing as a way of seeing and knowing could provide insights into processes, procedures, as well as to be put at the service of abstract and formal languages that were notational and analytic. All of that came to my work in digital humanities when I arrived at the University of Virginia in 1999, having taught art history uh, for about 14, 15 years and studio art before that. And what struck me in the digital humanities community, which was thriving and very vibrant at Virginia, really a kind of cutting edge community, was the lack of engagement with visuality and graphicality. People were doing projects of longstanding with considerable intellectual labor and investment, 
but without even considering what an interface would be into that work, for instance. And at the moment that they would sit down to start thinking about an interface, they thought of it more as a kind of accessory or add-on rather than as a work of conceptual engineering that was about knowledge design and the, you know, instantiation of thought forms and arguments and rhetoric within graphical form. So it was in that context that my background in, in, in visual epistemology, which is really the strain that unites all of my scholarly work, as well as a lot of my creative work, began to be put into dialogue with digital projects. And it was um, an opportunity to innovate and imagine possibilities that are still showing up in um, this current book publication. Right. So um, I think in the introduction, you mentioned that um, you, you you are hopeful for, 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 for this book um, to, to be an intervention at a specific moment for the, for the digital humanity. So could you maybe could you say something about what specifically is could could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Um, digital humanities has matured tremendously, and I think one of the, the the consequences of this, which has you know benefits and liabilities, is that the kinds of tools that are available for analysis, processing, and display across m- multiple disciplines and forms of, you know, and and sort of forms of data, whether it's in, you know, history, sociology, history of science, the arts, um, literature, and so forth. These tools and platforms have become somewhat standard. um, And that means that one doesn't need a lot of specialized knowledge to make use of them. Um, Wonderful tools. I think about something like Voyant that was developed by the late Stephen Sinclair and, and, and uh, continuing work with Jeff, Jeffrey Rockwell. And, you know, it's this amazing platform. You, you can take your, your literary works and your data and, and begin to de- generate graphical, um, you know, uh, displays for analysis and, and engage with the um, problems of, um, uh, you know, of, of topic modeling and of word frequency and so forth. But what's lost in the process is the ability to conceptualize from the outset how visualization might work as a representational or analytic or productive tool or platform. And so we have these black box standard, um, you know, again, tools and platforms, but less and less do we conceptualize the tools. I mean, there are people who do that, the people who make innovations in all of these different domains, but for the most part, the um, the suite of uh, visualization types is pretty well fixed. And I mean, we could go through a list of them, but, but you would know them. Um, it's fit pretty well fixed, and and the, the the sense that display follows data rather than being a site for creative imaginative intervention has also become part of the standard formulaic um, you know procedures within digital humanities. So my hope is that we could begin to um, you know open up the possibilities for visualization to be a site of knowledge production, not merely an instrument, a kind of mechanism for display of already modeled or created data. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so let's, let's talk about the book then. What, what, um, what would you say are, are the key contributions um, of, of, of your book? 
Sure. Um, well, there's a number of different ideas in the book that I've been working with again for about 20 years. Um, some of the uh, ideas here have their kind of kernel origin in the first projects that I did at Virginia, um, in particular, the project called Temporal Modeling. And that project, like much of the, the kind of conceptual framework of this this book, had to do with thinking about what's the relationship between interpretation and visuality. How, how can we enable um, that relationship to really be dynamic, um, and how can we understand it critically um, as a as an intervention in in knowledge, not just again an intervention in display? So you can you can imagine all kinds of really interesting displays, but the point is that unless they are actually um, thought through in terms of key concepts that come out of the humanities, they will continue to simply be these again mechanistic instruments. So when I say key concepts in the humanities that intersect with visualization, um, I mean a number of things. First of all, I'm really interested in what is graphical knowledge? I mean, what is visual epistemology? H- how is, is visuality a primary mode of knowledge production? How do we understand it? And, you know, the very simple demonstrations of this when you're, you know, teaching in the classroom are something like, you know, put two words on the board, right? Write two words on the board and then move one closer to the other. That act of creating proximity produces tension. It produces a dynamic. So, you know, what, what does proximity mean? How do we read something like proximity, hierarchy, sequencing, ordering, scale? All of those features are graphical and they carry semantic value in themselves as, gra- as, as a graphical code. So that's one of the fundamental principles um, that have been, you know, it's not my principle. I mean, it's, it's certainly present within, you know, formal analyses of, of visual work in art history and in um, gestalt psychology and visual semiotics. Um, but it, um, in spite of, of there being a considerable literature and, and knowledge base in this field, um, this kind of approach to visual knowledge has not integrated successfully into the humanities disciplines. So that's one core concept. Within that, there are another, another set of, of concepts. For instance, um, what is the nature of interpretation and probabilistic interpretation in a dynamic relationship between provocation and experience? And again, this is a model of interpretation that comes out of 20th century philosophy. It's not my invention, um, but again, it pushes back against a kind of literalness that tends to come into digital uh, processing activity in which the um, notion that somehow um, a a visualization simply is a statement, right? But it's not a statement, it's an argument. And, and what's the difference between a declarative statement and a probabilistic argument? How, how, does, an, how does interpretation work in relationship to human users, viewers, and readers? Um, so there's, again, a model of interpretation here. So graphicality and interpretation are two of the key concepts. In addition, um, I'm interested in what I call non-representational approaches to visualization, and that sounds counterintuitive. How can an image not be representational? All images seem to be pictures of something or signs for something. But the concept of non-representational image production comes out of 
the work of Nigel Thrift and other um, uh, geographers um, who are looking at the ways in which the um, production of um, the, the production of images as a way to record experience, to show experience, um, um, do, do not that these modes do not depend upon a kind of prior concept already being put into a relationship with a surrogate, but instead it's the making of the mark, it's the making of the sign, it's the making of the image that actually is the act of knowledge production. So again, graphicality, interpretation, non-representational approaches to image, which simply means let image making be a primary site of knowledge production. And then um, I'm also really interested in the concept of enunciation, which comes out of linguistics. And enunciation is simply the, um, you know, sort of analysis of the ways in which subject positionality is structured into articulation. When I speak to you, I address a you who is positioned in relationship to the speaking I. And that structure is a social dynamic, a political dynamic, a linguistic dynamic. And my argument is it's also present in graphicality that the front-facing appearance of images on a screen, the, the classic interface with its, you know, sort of alignment with that, that frontal plane um, performs an enunciative act and that there's a kind of politics to looking at the ways in which power structures are hidden, concealed, and also instrumentalized in those um, environments. So I would say, you know, that those four concepts, you know, graphicality as knowledge, um, you know, interpretation as a fundamental aspect of uh, humanistic relationship to knowledge, um, uh, non-representational approaches that allow um, visuality, visuality to be a primary site for knowledge production, and enunciation, which is a way to look at the kind of power politics of graphical forms, um, those would probably be the four crucial concepts um, in the work. That's probably right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that was yeah. Um, so one one thing that struck me when reading the book is that um, um, it it is a book about 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 visualization and and, and visual forms of knowledge. But um, throughout the, the 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 main chapters of the book, there is actually. Um, There is there is no visualizations, and then you have you have this appendix um, for the book where you have um, when it's, where you show different design concepts and kind of exemplify some of the points that you make. Um, could you could you say something about about that about that um, that that choice to to in a sense to 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 uh, I don't want to say relegate, but to 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 to, to place those those the, the, the visual component um, at the at the end of the book. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure that was my decision. Okay. <laughs> so, I think this kind of sense that that was the gallery, that was the, the appendix. Um, I'm not sure it's, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, if, if I were to take responsibility for that and say, you know, that there was a, an, an, a reason for, for sort of making that separation, um, you know, it would be hard for me to find a, a strong argument for it. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't myself teach that way um, because, again, I'm interested in uh, the ways in which direct engagement with visuality produces right. insight. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and and um, um, what could could you say something about where those? I mean, I think you and you you say that you said it in the book as well that 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 some of these um, drafts and some of these some of these images come out of um, various projects that you have been part of over the year, and and one that seems to come up quite a lot is uh, I think it was called three DH. Uh huh. Um, could could you say something about that? Oh sure, three DH was lots of fun. Um, 3DH is a project that was sponsored by and initiated by Jan Christoph Meister at the University of Hamburg. And um, he had, you know, received funds to try to look at the future of visualization in the humanities. And um, he's a narratologist. And of course, narratology is a wonderful humanistic endeavor because it it's so nuanced in the way that it looks at the relationship between the plane of discourse and the plane of reference, you know, the, the telling and the told, and th therefore is is premised on these very notions of interpretation that are central to my own um, sort of approach to visuality and knowledge. And so he had said, oh, would you be interested in coming and working with us for a while to think about how we could advance visualizations in the humanities? And so I went and worked with him and his team and um, wonderful people um, there, uh, you know, uh, Marco Petrus and Rabea Clayman and Evelyn Geis um, and Jeffrey Rockwell joined us. And we had other incredible visitors, um, Florian Windhagen and, and Laura Mandel. But, um, you know, our project really was to try to conceptualize visualizations that would work with a markup scheme that he and his team had developed called CATMA. Um, which is a quite um, elaborate but graphically enabled way to do um, text analysis um, for narrative purposes. Um, so we worked together for about three months um, in the spring of 2016. And though the project, you know, sort of got, you know, only to a certain point, as, as projects sometimes will, um, it was an opportunity really for me to develop a suite of um, uh, graphical concepts that um, I could at least, you know, put into uh, sketches and, and drawings. And those graphical concepts drew on modes of visual production that are not part of the, the um, digital humanities at this point, but come out of the conventions of architectural drawing, mathematical drawing, perspectival drawing. In other words, my argument was, why don't we expand our vocabulary of visualization types beyond the charts, graphs, pie charts, network diagrams, and, you know, whisker bar, um, you know, diagrams mm. and such that really were developed for the natural sciences and social sciences. Why not draw on the traditions of the arts um, to see what we could do, not just to make more interesting images, but to expand concepts. So very simply, for instance, what does it mean to put a point of view system into a visualization? We're completely used to it. And you know, from the history of, of, of art to see the situated point of view of someone in, who is, who, from, whom, from whose point of view the image is produced. And yet we never do this in visualizations. And um, again, going back to what we did in Virginia, um, starting with temporal modeling and then with a project we did called Ivanhoe, we being the speculative computing lab that I founded with my colleague uh, Jerome McGann, um, you know, we introduced a point of view system into the interface with the idea that 
the game of Ivanhoe, which was a game of interpretation and literary play, should always only be seen from the point of view of, of someone. It should always be owned. It should always be claimed. No omniscient point of view. So, you know, concept that is instantiated in a set of graphical conventions isn't just a kind of augmentation of of pictures or an addition of pictorial kind of devices. It's a conceptual intervention in the understanding of how visualizations produce knowledge. And that's, that was a lot of what, you know, um, became distilled in the course of doing the 3DH project. Right. So, and and you said the project, um, um, it only, it only lasted so long, um, um, and and didn't um, and, and and didn't continue then. But do, do you do you envisage to continue some of the some of the work developed there in terms of I don't know even developing um, maybe a, a tool or a, or a platform mm -hmm. um, 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 that incorporates um, some of those? I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, um, I've had a, a, a project here. And I get distracted because I have some other things to do from time to time. <laughs> I think it's busy. Um, but I've been working here with um, a couple of doctoral students on a project that's called Heterochronologies. And it's, um, you know, making use of some of these tools and, and also pushing the temporal modeling project um, forward again. I mean, these are projects I've worked on off and on for years Um and would really like to see turned into a platform. So heterochronologies, for instance, is a project that tries to think about how making the specificity of difference across ontologies visible um, could be put at the service of humanistic work. So, you know, timelines, chronologies, Comptis schemes, and so forth that come out of um, the history of human culture and across cultures um, don't match, right? They're, they're, they're different in length, structure, units, metrics, um, you know, calendar schemes and so forth. And rather than thinking about reconciling these to a single overarching unified system, you know, a kind of, you know, um, you know, uber crosswalk kind of um, phenomenon. The notion would be to create an environment where, um, you know, comparative and comparison and correlation would expose the specifics of the relationships among these schema. And so um, we developed a thing we call time capsule um, that is a space for um, uh, doing that kind of comparative work. No, we haven't built a back end. We've been working a lot on conceptualizing the way this um, works for users and viewers. And said so my two, um, you know, collaborators here, uh, Peter Pollock and Pietro Santacchiera, have been um, engaged in helping to, you know, do the research and conceptualization and, and visualizations and, and put this forward. Um, and so there's lots of work to be done um, and, you know, possibilities. And I would love to see some of the, the kind of more um, imaginative features from the 3DH project be able to be implemented. Um, so, um, you know, there's no reason that they couldn't be. I just haven't devoted my time to it um, in the last couple of years. I was, as I said, busy um, with various yeah. projects. Hmm. Yeah. 
Interesting. I mean, so another thing that I that I'm that I'm interested in, and I guess it is it is it would be too early to I guess to ask about reception of this book because it just came out last month. But um, you, you mentioned that 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 a lot of these ideas you you are are not some uh, things that you have been working on on for years. So I would be I would be curious if you could say something about your um, I guess your interactions with the um, with the data visualization community, and then maybe hmm. also with more critical communities like i think you mentioned critical geographers um, right or critical data studies yeah you know i mean i have to say that um you know one of the things that's interesting within the humanities i'll start there um before i move to the visualization folks and um other critical um you know communities of critical practice but in the humanities um, you know, there has been a long-standing resistance to visuality as a primary mode of knowledge production. I mean, we have the art historians and we have the architectural, you know, folks who understand visuality and its role. But to a great extent, people in a text-based community, and this was certainly true for me in my life among the poets um, in the 1970s and 80s when I was first doing you know, graphically scoring poetic works, um, and then was true in, you know, literary studies, is that there's just a kind of, you know, distrust of the visual, um, as if it trivializes the authority of the word. And, you know, this has long-standing um, sort of connections to the sort of theology of text within Western culture, um, I think it's very different in um, Asian culture where calligraphic production of text is considered integral to the um, affective dimensions of communication. Um, but, uh, you know, strong resistance. And then when, when we started playing with the, um, you know, sort of concept of temporal modeling at Virginia and wanted to assert the, the idea that visuality was a primary mode of knowledge production, that you could make a mark and another mark, and that would produce data, and that that was a way of making an argument, um, it met with a lot of resistance. And the resistance came from a couple of directions. One was, um, and, and, and with good reason, a recognition of the fundamental instability of the graphical sign. Right. I mean, this is this is a fact of visuality, which is that um, visual signs are not doubly articulated the way that linguistic ones are. And so there's no semiotic set. There's no fundamentals, fundamental elements in the visual, um, you know, in the, in, in the visual compositional um, system. And so it's like, what's the basic unit? You know, what's the basic unit of an image? Is it a is it a stroke? Is it a mark? Is it a blotch? Is it a color? Is it what? Um, so, you know, I think there was, you know, a nervousness about that. And then there was a nervousness about the idea of interpretation versus empiricism, um, that, you know, part of what the digital humanities was ready to work with was, um, what kinds of analytics can be performed on humanistic work that conform to the methods of empiricism that are being borrowed by appropriating statistical analysis, numerical analysis, and quantitative methods. So the whole notion of disambiguation that's essential for computational processing just seemed to, you know, have a kind of authority to it. 
that didn't fit comfortably with the idea of probabilistic interpretation. It's like, whoa, no, don't do that to us. You know, we want, (laughs) please. So that made people uncomfortable. So you combine visuality and, you know, probability. It's like, ah. Um, So there was that kind of resistance. Um, And, you know, fine. I mean, so what? I carry on, right? Um, But uh, little by little, I think, um, in particular, the concepts of CAPTA and the idea of visuality as a primary site for engagement with with analysis have had more and more traction. And that's not just because of me. I think it's because um, as visualizations have become more and more prolific and more and more familiar because they can be produced out of an Excel sheet, you know, I mean, they can be produced quite easily. Um, I think people are more and more, you know, sort of comfortable with the idea that, oh, this is something we should be looking at using, thinking about critically. Um, And in the data visualization community, of course, there's some, you know, really um, wonderful uh, work. I mean, there's, you know, there's the work of Lauren Klein and Catherine D'Ignazio, feminist data visualization. There's, the um, you know work of Yanni Lukisis on all data are local visualizations. I know it's really sophisticated, you know, um, interesting work, and um, you know work like Tom Carden's work that you know plays with um, uh, distortions of space um, according to factors of time. So, but it's really the the cartographers um, who were most influential on me because of again the the kind of affective dimensions of spatial production um, and their and their presentation in, in graphical form. It's like, you know, a, a, a cultural uh, uh, geographer will say um, two different people do not inhabit the same space differently. They inhabit different spaces. They construct different spaces. And again, you can think about this on, in terms of like urban street experience, right? It's like, if you're, you know, if your demographics, you know, read one way, your relationship to that space is completely different than it is if your demographics are are distinct from that. And you know, um, you know, women women live in a different world than men. I will tell you that when it comes to urban space, you know, it's like it's not that we inhabit the same space differently. The space itself is 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 different. And again, that's a constructivist approach to knowledge. There are very few data visualizations that embody constructivist principles. And this, again, is one of my, you know, sort of like someday I will manage to do this with the right team of folks um, and to show how that is the case. Um, And so the data visualization people, the strict data visualization people now, not the kind of, you know, subset that is the intersection with the humanists, but the strict data visualization people, you know, have gotten more and more interested. I was invited to be a keynote speaker at the um, IEEE conference up in Vancouver about a year ago in their visualization, you know, the visualization subsection. And I got there and I started going to the, the different, um, you know, sessions in advance of my talk. And, you know, these are really super technical, very skilled, um, trained, you know, folks who are working with things like, you know, well, 
if we have a cluster amalgam that represents the the sigma, uh, you know, sort of factor, how can we optimize the kind of distribution, you know, graph in order to, you know, efficiently display the, you know, uh, 12 factor, you know, di- di- you see, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sitting there in these sessions and I'm thinking, <laughs> what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Like, why would these people want to talk to me? And um, and yet, I have to say, when I gave my talk, which was about humanistic and you know approaches to to visualization, you know, it was a room of over a thousand people, and they were enthused. I was like, that's mm-hmm. incredible. Um, you know, they. I think there's a, a recognition that the affective dimensions of human experience have a role to play in data modeling and in visualization and its expression. Um, and I'll give you an example, because again, this comes out of our temporal modeling work. And um, that is that um, if you're modeling um, a crisis event, and supposing you have you know, a natural disaster that's imminent, and, or a natural disaster that's unfolding, and you know, the consequences of that are imminent, and they have to do with, say, a dam breaking, a school being at risk of being flooded and washed away, emergency equipment needing to be deployed, crews that need to be scheduled, multiple temporal, you know, sort of, t- you know, sort of streams that all have to be coordinated, but where the data feed is not synchronous, right? It's intermittent on hmm. different cycles. But you also have the fact that adrenaline produces different kinds of perceptions of temporality in different, um, you know, within the the physiological, um, you know, sort of experience of individuals. And so you have these multiple different aspects of the way in which temporalities need to be correlated that take into account um, the affective, in the real almost physiological sense of it, um, dimension of times unfolding. Well, how do you model that? And how does visualization help to... Um, support decision-making processes at crucial junctures with enough time window in them to be able to be have a successful outcome. So, you know, it's like, I think people see that, you know, affective dimensions of experience mm. are not incidental to, um, you know, data visualization, but are important to it. Um, but some of the data visualization people, and I won't say, I won't name names, it doesn't matter, are quite resistant to these ideas. And um, our, you know, data visualization came out of a kind of optimization of consumer satisfaction mode. And, mm. um, you know, it's like, how do you help people get what they think they want, right? Whether they're filtering for um, an airline ticket or they're looking at restaurant reviews or they're trying to buy their favorite, you know, chocolate online, whatever it is. And so that model of interface and a visualization is very consumer oriented. It's not interested in the production of subjectivity, nor should it be necessarily, right? It's It's got a different purpose right. to it. Um, and then, I don't know, the, one of the wonderful um, domains of, of critical intervention, I think, has been um, you know, an, an understanding of hand-drawn data, um, the wonderful project by um, Stephanie Posevec and um, her partner, her her partner in the project, whose name I forget, which is unfortunate. Um, but the Dear Data project is very engaging, um, and I think, 
you know, allows allowed a whole bunch of people to suddenly see possibilities in um, non-standard data pract- uh, uh, visualizations that inspired imagination. So that's a, a, a terrific project. Um, you know, I think the work that Laura Kurgan was doing on the Million Dollar Blocks years ago, um, work that's come out of Marin Dork's lab in Potsdam and other uh, places, you know, they're, they're really interesting, um, you know, sort of projects or, or, or groups of people who are trying to, to think about the as yet unrealized potential of visualization to engage with broader vocabularies and therefore broader conceptual frameworks and, yeah, and inputs. Right. Yeah. No, that's, 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 that's fascinating. And it's interesting that, uh, yeah, that, uh, um, uh, I, uh, triple E people invited you to them. (laughs) I thought so too. But again, I was very surprised at the reception um, you know, that there was a real openness. And, and for instance, one of the things I was talking about was the notion of the enunciative interface. Um, and I said, you know, is there a way that we can create interfaces that, number one, um, you know, really uh, expose the life cycle of data, right? Because it's one of the big problems mm. is that, right. you know, you arrive at a visualization and, and it simply appears to be a presentation of, of, you know, a statement of fact, a statement of what is, but in fact, it's a complex representation that's a remediation of model data that's extracted from a phenomena. The model is lost. You can't see it. You don't know what was eliminated, cleaned up, smoothed. You know, it's like all that's a yeah. phase. And so I said, you know, this is something that has an ethical dimension to it within, you know, news and informatics and pandemic um, management and so forth. And uh, somebody who's from a very important, again, I won't say say what, but a very important, um, you know, visualization platform said, oh, yeah, we agree. And, and we're trying to work on this. Right? And I'm yeah. like, great, you know, this is fantastic. So I think the problems that I've identified are in many ways, you know, problems that other people are, are aware of. Um, it's just that I think I'm more interested in pushing against the received conventions than um mm. and not you know it's 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 interesting to me to think how does how do forms constrain knowledge yeah and how can we think beyond the conventions that you know we internalize as if they are full explanations for how to think um so I was raised in a tradition of radical skepticism, and I just kind of can't let go of it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm sure there's something we're not thinking yet. I'm sure there's some way to think about this that we haven't yet. Um, and, uh, and again, I think because visualizations play such a huge role in our current um, existence. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I'm always looking at the pandemic statistics. Oh, yeah. And trying to understand them, and you know they they play out in these kinds of bar charts. But we know the bar charts are you know sort of aggregate mm. reductions of complex phenomena. Yeah, yeah. I think this whole uh, this whole this whole pandemic has been uh, has been one big I guess teachable moment, as they, <laughs> as yeah, they call exactly. it when it comes to for, for all of this kind for, of for, you know for, big data processing yeah. and and. Uh, 
Right. And, and, and also the interaction, yeah, the ubiquity of charts and, yes. and, and, and visual ways of engaging with, yeah. Right. Um, with right. what's happening. Yeah, no. And, um, you know, I mean, the, it's, it's just we, we do not actually have adequate, um, you know, visual conventions for showing many of the kinds of phenomena that we want to show. Um, and in prote- particular, the complexity of, of, of data mm. now yeah. and, and, of the, and of the modeling processes that go into their production. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So is this, I mean, is this something, um, is this something you, you, are, you are planning to continue working on or, or what, what, what are you working on now? What's your next, what will be your next major project? Well, I've had a bunch of projects this year. It's been a, a year of kind of finishing up work that's had very long life cycles to it. I just uh, published a book with Johns Hopkins University Press uh, about a figure named Ilyas Danievich, who was a Russian futurist, Zaum, transmental poetry writer and typographer who became a publisher of Livre d'Artiste and designer, lived in Paris um, most of his adult life. And this is a project I started in 1985, um, and I've, it's now out. At, it, it was a biography of, of Stanievich and his work, but it's um, now a metabiography that reflects on biographical processes. It's not specifically about visuality, though the books are very visual and graphic and highly structured in their own formal um, instantiation, but um, it's, it's a book that has has much resonance with this other work because it is about the relationship between evidence and interpretation, you know, knowledge and story, um, and, and, you know, uh, cultural processes of history and their relationship to, you know, how we understand an individual life and, a, and, and culture, but also because they're about books, um, cause has made these fantastic, uh, works. They ask the question of how an individual, how an in, how an object like a book um, is limited in the way it can actually tell its own story. So in that sense, it's not that different from saying an information visualization doesn't have the tools in it to reveal the processes of its production, the decision, hmm. right, the social conditions of its conception and execution. So anyway, that book is is very dear to my heart, um, and in part because of the relationships with people that were fostered by that research, and starting in the, the cold January winter of 1985, when I met the widow of Ilyas Danievich in this tiny little apartment in Paris, and she invited me in, and I'm sitting in this little you know room with her next to a flickering gas fire, and I'm looking around and realizing, oh... I am surrounded by major works of modern art. There's a portrait <laughs> by Natalia Goncharova and one by Robert Delaunay. And there's a collage by Picasso. And I'm like, oh, I can't believe I'm sitting in this little room, humble little room, like this tiny little studio apartment. Anyway, <laughs> so that's a project very dear to my heart. And then um, uh, I have a book on digital humanities, uh, the course book that I've rewritten that will be coming out in March. And then I've, I'm finishing up another project of like long, long standing, which is my uh, study of the history of knowledge about the alphabet and its origins, which I started in different ways uh, 40 years ago. I wrote another book about the alphabet that was published by Thompson Hudson in the 90s um, about the alphabet as a visual form. But 
this book is really about the intellectual tradition within which knowledge about the alphabet um, uh, developed um, and different technologies of knowledge production, textual, bibliographical, graphical, antiquarian, paleographic, and archaeological, um, and how we come to understand something as miraculous and uh, you know complex as the alphabet within this intellectual lineage. Of, you know. So hmm. that project is now under contract, and I'm editing and working on it. So you can see why I haven't had all that much time doing <laughs> the visualizations, but I don't know. Uh, I'll get back to them. You know, they, they never go away. Um, I just haven't made the production of the actual platform a primary research project. Um, you know, it's okay. I mean, somebody else can do it. I don't, I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, but I do have some, some folks that I've been in touch with who are interested in collaboration and they are people who are capable of doing this work. So if the opportunity arises to actually create a working prototype of, Mm. um, you know, the comparative ontologies, heterochronologies, temporal modeling environment, that would be fantastic because it would demonstrate um, how these principles have application um, in various kinds of humanistic um, and cultural undertakings. Right. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a that sounds like an like an exciting uh, 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 scholarly agenda ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, it'd be fun. Um, you know, there's yeah. there's the great fun of working with people um, and of you know the the it, it's such a fascinating process to take you know concepts. And watch the ways in which consensus understanding develops through conversation and exchange. And, you know, that's crucial to the development of anything that will actually be able to be used. Because if it's just some, you know, strange, peculiar, oh, Drucker again idea, (laughs) (laughs) but if it can be made to function... And again, I'll just I'll finish maybe with this very nice anecdote because um, we were very inspired, we being uh, uh, Peter and Pietro and I, um, by a conversation that we had with Yanni Lucisis recently, and he was talking to us about the Map Room project and how it works, and it's you know this uh, set of projections and you know pa- tables covered with paper and people and communities coming together and drawing, and again, it's very much a demonstration of this kind of non-representational experiential, um, you know, engagement with space and communities and neighborhoods and, and, and so forth. And, um, I said, Oh, this is what we sort of moved our thinking for the, the chronologies project, um, forward into a way that was like very graphic and very like, you know, graspable. And I went to see some old friends of mine recently, and they were talking about having a conversation with their grandchildren, um, and the grandchildren, they said something about some event and the grandchildren looked at them like the civil war, like what was that, you know, or, you know, <laughs> world war, what, you know? And so the grandparents were of course, you know, very disturbed by this. It's like, Oh, these children today, they know nothing. They know nothing. And, um, so they put a big piece of paper out on the table 
And they said, okay, let's, let's just play a game here. Let's like, what's the earliest thing? The earliest thing you can think of in history. And that they'll put it down here at this end. Now, what's the most recent thing? And we'll put it over here at this end. Hmm. So immediately, spatialization becomes part of the graphical investigation of history. And then hmm. they had the kids start to name different kinds of events, anything they could think of, you know, whether it was the discovery of America or, you know, the moon landing or, you know, the, their first birthday. And they began to put this into this large schema of this space on the table and to begin to grapple with the different scales, the different metrics, you know, when did dinosaurs roam the earth? How long before your first birthday? You know, it's like, what kind of time scales do you need to begin to understand that? And so that kind of engagement, which just seems so rewarding, like the kids just got completely absorbed. They were, they were like, you mm. know, into history suddenly because it was participatory. It was visible. It was mm. cognitively graspable because of the way that they were actively participating in decisions about where do I place it? What is its relationship to other events? And what does that mean about the, you know, timescales of history? So, you know, um, so that kind of pushed us towards our time capsule concept um, because, again, it's suddenly useful in all kinds of ways. Right. Well, that's a fantastic, that's a nice anecdote uh, <laughs> uh, to, to end this with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining me for, for the interview. Well, thank you so much for having me.